Richard Louvre, in his best-selling book, Last Child in the Woods, introduced us to the phrase, nature deficit disorder, a non-medical term that went straight to the heart of what has been happening in our culture for generations. An increase in the disconnect we have with our natural world, with nature. That phrase, nature deficit disorder, has become part of our vocabulary, our language. It has given us a way to address how we see our relationship with nature and its effects on us. After interviewing Richard Louvre for our episode, Our Wild Calling, I asked Richard if we could revisit Last Child in the Woods and get his perspective on its impact and where we are now. Richard, thank you for joining me to look back on your book, Last Child in the Woods. I believe that that book is one of the most important books of the last 30 years. It really got people's attention. So I appreciate you joining me on Nature Revisited to talk about the impact the book has had, how things have changed, and how you might see our future as we look forward. How important was nature in your childhood, and what inspired you to write the book? Well, first, Stefan, thanks for your kind words. And... Uh... I, I very much appreciate that. You know, I I lived at the edge of Kansas City on a suburban edge when I was growing up. My uh, yard ended at a hedge, and I could go into the cornfield where my underground fort was and where I encountered lots of ground-living birds and lots of other life. And then I could go from there on into the woods. It seemed to go on forever. And I spent much of my boyhood in those woods with my dog. His name was Banner. And my parents often did not know where I was, but Banner always did. And he would go home when I was up to no good. My mother would know I was up to no good. Those woods meant everything to me. I found something larger there than than my parents and their problems. I was lucky, though, that I had parents that that loved nature and, and introduced it to me. So what inspired the book? I just couldn't stand the idea that kids in the future, in fact, a lot of kids now at the time I was writing the book, would not have that in their lives. One way or another, they they needed to have that, I felt. And also, as a journalist, and that's a good story, I was a columnist for the Union Tribune in San Diego. No one else that I saw was covering it with any meaningful depth. But also, I've written about this a lot in, in the prior books. In my books about the changing urban form, uh, I even wrote a book about fishing uh, cultures in America and others, and I always came back to that topic of the human relationship with nature. So 
I, I was already writing about it when I wrote Last Child, but I, I thought that Last Child would probably be my last book when I wrote it. And I thought it was a long shot. But I wasn't sure that anybody would be interested in that, but I knew I, I needed to write it. Did you have a notion that it would become such a bestseller? No, uh, not at first. Let me tell you a story that I seldom tell. When I was really little, when I was four or so, we lived with my grandmother in Independence, Missouri. And I was out one day, and I think it must have been a fall day. It was cold, and it was overcast. I remembered in finite, in, 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 in very, very fine detail. I was out there, I had one of those hats with the flaps pulled down over your ears, and it's four years old, and I'm running around in the quince orchard at my mother, grandmother's house, and I jump across a little creek, or a little, a little ravine, and there's water going through it. And in my memory, and memory is always very tricky, in my memory, I'm almost uh, over the creek, and I stop in midair as I'm jumping, and I freeze there. I look down, and I see water and fall leaves in the water, and I have this overpowering feeling that there was something I needed to do in my life, and then, the, and then I completed the jump. Now, I don't know what that was, but that moment always haunted me because I would do things in my life. You know, I wrote other books, columnists, worked for nonprofits, and I kept wondering, was that it? Each stage of the way, I would say, was that what I was supposed to do? You know, as silly as that sounds, that haunted me. And I got into my early 50s, and I thought I had failed in life because I had not done that thing, whatever it was, that I was supposed to do. And then one day, I was on uh, a national NPR radio show, and all of these calls started coming in. They all started using the phrase nature deficit disorder, and there was something about that moment when I knew I'd finally done what I was supposed to do. In the book, you coined the phrase nature deficit disorder. So for those who might be listening and who might not be familiar with that term, how did you define it then? And how would you define it today? Has it changed at all in the past 16 years? No, it hasn't changed. Um, I, I was very careful in the book, and I have been ever since, whenever I talk about it, whenever I write about it. Sometimes I I forget to say it, but usually I do, which is this is not a known medical diagnosis. Maybe it should be, but it's not. Not yet. What it is, however, is a description of something that's been going on for several decades at that point and that people did not have a, a way to talk about it. They did not have a language to describe it. Where do you think the book has had its greatest impact? Well, you know, it's had a, an impact, or let me put it this way. Right after the book came out, and it was clear that it was taking off and it was going to be its own kind of phenomenon, I was pretty overwhelmed because... Near the end of the book, I describe, I imagine, a movement that might emerge to connect children to nature. It was wishful thinking at the time. And then all of a sudden, people started to ask me, okay, Rich, what do we do now? I was overwhelmed by that, and I was lucky because a core group of 
good-hearted people came to my rescue, and uh, we formed the Children and Nature Network, which is a nonprofit. But after the book came out and people had a way to talk about it, and it received a lot of publicity, and it started getting attention for the good people who were already doing this work. In 2005, when the book came out, as I did the work on that, I could only find about 60 studies on the impact of nature experience on child development or on human development in general. The academic world had pretty much ignored that issue. I mean, it was astonishing to me. Here's the true elephant in the, in the room. There were a few very good pioneers out there who were doing academic research on that, scientific research, but not very many. So that year, there were only about 60 studies that I could find that I felt confident citing. If you go to the Children and Nature Network today, which is at childrenandnature.org, you'll see we've created a research library of abstracts that are independently done. If you go there, you'll see that it's gone from about 60 studies I could find in 2005 to well over 1,000 studies. And they're coming in every month, 10, 20 a month, from somewhere in the world. So what was once ignored in the academic world for the most part, has now become something of a growth industry. That's good news because it's being taken seriously by science now. That's one piece of evidence for the improvement. There are a lot of other areas. Do you see education starting to incorporate the many lessons of nature into how we are teaching our children? Yeah, I do. There, you know, For decades, there have been good environmental educators out there doing great work. But the idea of taking all of education outdoors, whether it's you know, geography or biology or, or whatever, that idea was not being pursued very much. And today, there are a lot of outdoor classrooms. Public education is slow to change, but it's changing. Particularly during COVID, there's more and more interest now in outdoor classrooms because of social distancing. But even before that, the number of nature-based preschools, for example, has skyrocketed in the last uh, decade. It's gone from a handful to several hundred in the United States. Now, that idea is, is popular in, in Europe, in Western Europe in particular, but it's really caught on uh, in the United States for the first time. Teachers would come up to me and all over the country and, and in other countries, too, when I spoke there, and they would say almost with, with the same word, almost the same sentence, that they had realized that the troublemaker in their class, when they got their class outdoors in nature, the troublemaker became the leader, not just better behaved, the leader. That's made me wonder how many leaders were losing. You know, those kids wearing black in the back of the classroom. But what about them? Could it be that we've been losing a lot of leaders because we aren't taking them outdoors more because we're putting them behind desks and canceling recess and having them take tests all day. And that doesn't do a lot for some kids. Ansel Adams, it turns out, probably had attention deficit disorder and he was kicked out of school. And his parents took him for 10 years, took him to all the great national parks. He turned out okay. He became Ansel Adams. And his photography now is probably responsible for at least some of the political support, such as it is for the National Park System. What if he had stayed in that classroom? What if he had sat there 
would he have turned into the great photography, the, the great leader, in a sense, that he became? I see that the marketplace is also trying to make a difference. You know, with, with there's a lot more nature camps and nature schools, and, and that's really bringing kids closer. Do you sense that the parents are really becoming engaged in this issue? I think so. There was a study that was done, I think, about three years ago, and it repeated research that was done almost 20 years ago by uh, Stephen Keller at Yale. And I believe the study is called The Nature of Americans. And it's about how Americans think about nature. What the new study found uh, was that awareness of the importance of nature for their children's health, this is less true for their children's education, but at least for their children's health, the awareness of parents of the importance of nature had skyrocketed in that decade. What had not changed a lot is the barriers. Some of them have gotten higher. Now, there's tens of thousands of people trying to bring down those barriers between children and nature. Do you see our relationship with technology? Is it still tearing away at the fabric of our spirit of place? You know, the easy answer would be yes, and I don't, I hesitate to say that. In the nature principle, I, I had a kind of bumper sticker maxim that I that I used, which was, the more high-tech our lives become, the more nature we need. It's an equation. It's a budgeting issue of time and money. The, the research has shown that the best antidote to the burnout that we get from staring at screens too long is simply to go outside in a natural area. So we need that, the more technology, and we're going to have more technology in our lives, whether we like it or not. So we have to vastly increase the amount of nature we have in our lives, in our children's lives. That has to be a conscious budgeting decision. Wendell Berry, although this may have been said by somebody else, and it's usually attributed to Wendell Berry, the poet, said that you cannot know who you are until you know where you are. That, that sense of place and nature right where you are, not far off at Yosemite Park. Nature where you are, nearby nature, is every bit as important. Both are important. And during COVID, all of a sudden, people in seclusion looked outside their window and noticed there were birds there and looked at their yard from their window and noticed there was life there. You know, suddenly they noticed that rabbit, or they noticed that coyote walking through the, the backyard, they made eye contact. They did not feel so alone at that moment. A lot of people have remarked on that. It's been a, a rediscovery, in a sense, for many people, of the power of nature. Uh, there's no accident. All the trailheads, not too far into the pandemic, the trailheads were packed as soon as people could get outside. Yeah, they're still packed. I know I live in the mountains east of San Diego, and I drive many days past some of these uh, trailheads, and there's long lines of parked cars. There are people out hiking that I don't think were there before. It'll be interesting to see if that continues. I, I have a sense it will. Is there anything that you have learned since writing the book that you wish you had added to it? I wish I'd spent more time in the book writing about urban nature, by that I mean the most 
densely populated neighborhoods of cities and the experience that people who live in those neighborhoods who are often black or Latino, their experience of nature through their eyes. How do they connect to nature? I've written the idea of natural cultural capacity, uh, which is that um, many cultures, including immigrant cultures in, in America and black and Latino cultures, have ways of, of connecting to nature that often are different. That there are ways of connecting to nature that cultures bring with them that I, I'm still curious about. So I wish I'd spent more time on that, and I wish I'd spent a little bit more time on the barriers of uh, inner cities. And I tried to make up for that in the following books. So in the book, you talk about the third frontier. Are we still in the third frontier, or are we moving into the fourth? I think we're on the verge of moving into the fourth. I don't think we have a lot of choice because of uh, what I call the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which are climate change, biodiversity collapse, pandemics, and this won't be the last one, and human loneliness. Those four forces are going to change things. And we can either get out ahead of those forces, create a future that we want to go to, by beginning to imagine it, that's the first step, or we won't. Over the years, I've asked many, many audiences to describe what images come into their head of the, of the far future. Don't think about it too much. What do you see? And time after time, almost always, people describe images in their head of the far future that look a lot like Blade Runner or Mad Max. Or at best, the Hunger Games. At least there's a few trees in the Hunger Games. These are all post-apocalyptic images of the future in which both love and nature have been diminished. If those are the main images we carry around as a culture in our heads, then that's the future we will get. Be careful what you imagine. You just might get it. We've got to be a lot more focused on imagining a future we want to go to. So do you think we're becoming better stewards of the planet? Uh, obviously, from the increased carbon in the atmosphere, the increased destruction of, of habitat, uh, the biodiversity collapse and all of that. Obviously, as a species, we're not. As individuals, many people are. There's no doubt about it. As communities, as sometimes cities, as towns, Often we are becoming better stewards. But I've, I've suggested that we stop thinking about ourselves as stewards. This is not about stewardship. We're not in charge. What we need to think about is we have to be moving toward the symbiocene in which we are in symbiosis with the rest of nature, that we're collaborating with it, working with the rest of nature, that we don't see ourselves as the be-all and end-all of the natural world. Only if we do that will our species, I think, survive. Do you think, from your perspective, that we are slowly coming to our senses? You know, one of the words that has gained currency and is used over and over and over again in the last year or two is the inception point. We're at that point. We're at a turning point. We're at a point where if you go in the, in the direction that I'm describing, in which we work with nature 
to make life better for all species, where we make cities better for not just the human species, but all the other animals that live in that urban region. There's a lot more talk about urban design that would incorporate more nature into cities. We learned from the pandemic that people need nature, that it heals, and that we need biodiversity in the cities because biodiversity happens to be one of the one of the defenses against what are called zoonotic diseases, diseases that hop from one species to another. The more biodiversity you have, the more the more you are guarded from that kind of disease. So we need more nature. We need more biodiversity in cities. There's no reason that cities can't become engines of biodiversity. Uh, there's a guy named Doug Ptolemy, who's a friend, and he talks about the homegrown national park. And what he means by that is, what if we replanted our yards all over America with native species? If you did that in a city, my yard, then your yard, then the next one, Pretty soon, you would have a return of the kind of native insect. I've seen this happen in our own yard in the house where we lived, where we replanted the yard, and all of a sudden, all kinds of species started coming home. I didn't know were the original inhabitants. If we did that, we'd have essentially wildlife corridors lacing through the cities and beyond the cities all over the country. That would increase the biodiversity, and it increases the likelihood that all native species will have a chance because they're programmed that way by millions of years of evolution in a specific bioregion. So if we did that, we could have cities as engines of biodiversity. We could do this on our roofs. We could do this in many ways. One of the things that the the pandemic drove home also was the inequity of distribution of nature generally, but also in cities, particularly there where Many neighborhoods, inner city neighborhoods, don't have parks, certainly don't have natural parks often. So that is something that needs to be worked on. So the last time we talked, you mentioned your attention had been kind of focusing on what might be called children's right to nature and nature's rights themselves. Is this an outcome of the book? And where is that taking you, and what are you learning? I wrote a cover story for Sierra Magazine called The Human Right to Nature, and it was it was calling for that, for a recognition of the human right to nature. It's not only children's right to nature, it's everyone's right to nature. That if this is so fundamental, as the science now shows, to human development, beginning with children, but all through our lives, if nature is that fundamental to our mental health, our our spiritual health, our physical health, then that is something that humans have a right to. Anything that's fundamental to humanity falls under the category of a human right. If that's true, then we need to declare it so. One reason for that is because as long as it's not thought of in that way as a right, it'll be patronized. So we have to change that in 2008. In 12, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, the IUCN, passed a resolution saying that this is a right, a human right for children to have a, a healthy connection with the natural world. That's a big step, even putting it in writing in that way. Now, the IUCN is the biggest network of conservation organizations, nonprofits in the world. 
So that was a significant moment. There's been a lot of talk since then about taking it to the UN and having it added to the list of human rights uh, for children. I think we need to do that. Uh, that Declaration of Human Rights for Children, by the way, has been signed, I believe, by every country in the world except two of them, and one of them is the United States. So lastly, um, given all that we've been through in the last year or so, how does the future look to you? I think it was two years ago now. When Australia was burning, so was Southern California, but Australia was burning. It was largely because of climate change. And we saw those amazing images coming out of uh, Australia, of people rushing into the fire area, many of whom had lost their homes. And they were taking water and food to koalas and other wild animals. But to save them, that was very moving. It speaks well of our species. Doug Albrecht, the Australian eco-philosopher, told me that when I asked him about that, he said, you know, all the great social movements that have moved people from knowledge to action have not been about data. They've been about love. They've been about relationship. We have to begin to talk about our relationship and our love for nature in that way also. We can't make this argument only based on data, only based on science and data, as important as that is. It's not, you know, we're not making the case very well. Environmentalism is we're not getting the action we should be, not at the speed we should be. So we have to change that conversation or expand it. Second thing that we also need, which is what I call imaginative hope, not blind hope, imaginative hope. As I said earlier, unless we can imagine the future we want to go to, we're not going to get there. There's a lot of good news out there, actually. There are a lot of great innovators. It's possible. If we begin to imagine that future, then we'll, we'll survive and thrive. And I would make the case that we have a better life ahead than we do now if we do that. Not just a sustainable life, not just one that can be sustained as in, you know, not things get not getting too much worse, but a much better life if we can move in those directions. But first, we have to imagine it. Since this interview has been, for me, kind of a revisiting your book, Last Child in the Woods, is there anything that you would like to share with my listeners about the book, its impact, both on the world, on you? The book is only a snapshot in time. You know, by itself, it didn't do much. By itself, it was a book that could be read. But what happened afterwards, and not only because of my book, but because of a lot of other people who had been arguing this, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people in the United States now and abroad, the Children of Nature Movement, as it's sometimes called, or the New Nature Movement, which I like to call it because it includes us as adults as well, is spreading. Brazil, two years ago, declared a national effort to connect kids to nature. That's Brazil. Who knew that uh, nature deficit disorder would be found in a place, a country that has the Amazon rainforest, that has so much nature, the same as in Canada, so much nature in Canada, and yet people are working very, very hard in these places all over the world. Like me, they can't stand the idea of children now or children in the future not being able 
to go out and lie in the grass and watch the clouds move, or build a little shelter in the woods, you know, or watch the animals uh, in their neighborhood and appreciate them and connect with them. Nobody wants that kind of future, and I think that that's that's the lasting lesson here: is that there's something in the human species that cannot stand the idea of being totally disconnected from nature. The last thing I'd say is that, you know, during the pandemic, we experienced an intensity of loneliness and human isolation. Many people did that perhaps they'd not experienced in that way, for sure, in a way that would make them more aware of the price of human isolation. I've made the case that this loneliness we feel is not only because of technology or even bad urban design or fear of strangers. Many of the same reasons that keep kids indoors are the same reasons that make humanity so lonely these days. I think it has to do with a deeper loneliness, I've called species loneliness, that as a species we have to feel that we are not alone in the universe. And we're not. We're surrounded by a great conversation of life. The more science knows about that conversation and how forms of life communicate, the more aware we are of that conversation. To the degree that we begin to notice that, we will feel less lonely as a species. And I think that's the lasting goal here, or the the main goal. You know, in addition to connecting kids to nature, that's part of a larger goal, which is to escape our own loneliness in a way that nurtures life but doesn't destroy it. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Richard Louvre. And if you have read Last Child in the Woods, you might revisit it. And if you haven't, I hope you will. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with family, friends, and colleagues. If you would like to share your thoughts or comments, please send them to us at our website. You can also follow us on Instagram, YouTube, or at our website, NordenProductions.com. That's Norden, N-O-O-R, D-E-N Productions.com Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Orden and Charles Gagan. I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, remember, we are nature. Thank you.